What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Linda Ronstadt, I am so excited about having this conversation with you and also about your new book uh, called Feels Like Home, a song for the Sonoran Borderlines, which you co-wrote with Lawrence Downs and is also filled with gorgeous photos by Bill Stein. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'd like to start with the title of the book. For folks who may not understand the reference, what are the Sonoran Borderlines? Well, the Sonoran Borderlines is a, a sort of an oval-shaped patch of land that is the same on both sides of the border. The border happens to run through it, but it's still continuous. And it, it has certain characteristics like saguaro cactuses. You know, those cactuses that are real tall and have, have arms, look like a candelabra. They're only, in, they're only found in that region. They're found in no other place in the world. So when I see those, I know I'm home. And home includes across the border, too. Let's talk about home and home as a child. Can you tell us a bit about your family? Um and how the Sonoran lifestyle was wrapped into the way you grew up. Well, Sonora is mostly ranching country and mining, cattle and mining. And it also is a great wheat, wheat growing region. It's the wheat belt of Mexico. It has the most fertile soil. The Sonora River Valley, which is where my family came from, has the most fertile soil of anywhere in Mexico. And I've always loved their way of life. The food they eat has had a tremendous influence on American culture. Beans and tortillas, tacos. Sonoran hot dog, so all things that are eaten up here. Um, men wear cowboy shirts that have stamp buttons and yoke collars. That's Mexican. There are a lot of there are just countless examples of that. Maybe people refer to it like if you if you call a, a cowboy a buckaroo, it's a common name for cowboy. You're, you're saying a mispronunciation of vaquero because uh-huh. that 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 was what the word for cowboy is vaquero. So buckaroo is what the gringos wound up with. And there are all kinds of there are all kinds of examples like that. The the book is is filled with with recipes, which I was going to talk about later. But I was specifically going to ask you about Sonoran hot dogs, and since you brought that up, what is the difference between a Sonoran hot dog and your regular old American Oscar Mayer, I guess, hot dog? Food, it's food bling. I don't eat hot dogs. I I'm not a not much of a meat eater, but I definitely don't eat junk food. But I only eat a Sonoran hot dog if it comes within reach of my arm. They put everything on it. They put really unlikely things like mayonnaise and guacamole and beans and chilies. I'm trying to think. There's like a whole board full of stuff. You could pick what you want. But they they taste amazing. There's a certain kind of bun that's been adapted to, to, to make a Sonoran hot dog. That's the, only, that's the only real difference. I mean, it's a hot dog. It just has a lot of stuff to make it taste good on it. <laughs> Feels Like Home, a song for the Sonoran Borderlines, talks a lot about the culture, the feel, the lifestyle, growing up um, near the border. But you were it was going to start as a cookbook, correct? What happened with that? It started as a cookbook. Well, Cece Goldwater, who was Barry Goldwater's granddaughter, her father died of Parkinson's disease, died with Parkinson's disease. And um, she wanted to write a cookbook and make it something we sell in the, in the airport, you know? 
just or in hotel gift shops to be uh, a fundraiser for the Parkinson's Foundation that's in, in Phoenix. And I thought that was fine, but I don't cook. And we kept trying to get it together and just didn't gel. And I had already asked Lawrence Downs if he would write it and Bill Steen to do the photographs. So I said, well, let's do, I've always wanted to write about my great-grandmother, so let's write about that. And write about the Sonora Desert region primarily. Because Bill, Bill's like my dad. He knows everybody in northern Mexico. He knows who their kids are. He, he could run for president and win there. Hmm. He's a great guy, and he's a really good photographer, and he's a great cook. So... What started out to be family recipes from three families, the, Stein, the Steens, the Goldwaters, and the Ronstadts, turned out to be a book about Sonoran culture, how it is, what it's like on both sides of the border, how it's different, how it's the same. Be surprised. And um, seen through five generations of my family's eyes. That's a good segue into a question that um, I have for you, because I, I definitely want to spend some time uh, with chapter five of your book. Um Talk about what the borderline was like when you were growing up. You describe it really beautifully. Um, how that has changed and what has been damaged or lost. Well, there was a fence that you could hop over. You could hop through it. There was a, uh, a booth set up there. And you stopped and showed your driver's license and said you were an American citizen. And they gave you a stamp and you went through. We used to go there to shop. They had really good stores in Nogales. And we used to go there to shop, and we used to go for lunch, and we'd make a whole trip, of, a whole day trip of it. It only took 45 minutes to get there, or an hour. I guess it was an hour, because cars didn't go that fast then. It was 60, it's about 60 miles from Tucson, slightly southeast. And then we, or we'd go on down to YMS, or wherever we had permits for. And people came to each other's parties on both sides of the line. My parents, kids, and friends would, would come to our dances and our birthdays and baptisms, and we would go to theirs. It was easy to get back and forth. And when you went back in 2019, what was significant for you in terms of how it had changed and, and what had been damaged or lost? Well, there was a big fence, a brutish-looking fence with razor wire struck on both sides. It looked like Syria, you know, and for no reason. I was there, the last time I went down there was the day that we, the United States had declared a state of emergency at the border and sent all kinds of federal troops and stuff. And... We went across the border, and there were people shopping, picking up their kids from school, walking around being citizens. There was no emergency. There was no violence. But there was this ton of razor wire that dogs were getting caught in, children were getting cut on, and it looked really ugly as sin. That's like you want to be decorating your street as a roll of bar razor wire. So that was pretty intense. And the border is filled with, the, often it's filled with the worst of each culture. You get a lot of bad culture from the United States, a lot of bad culture from Mexico. But that's always been a pretty happy town. And they're making it so it's so hard to get across the border that people are dying trying to do it. And it just cost a huge amount of money. It was a ton of concrete. They had to make cement. And they drained the wells of the Native American reservations on the border to get water for, to make concrete. It's a total waste of money. The fence is permeable. Most people come up to the United States looking for jobs. They come legally with a visitor's visa. They overstayed their visa. So the fence is no deterrent. It just catches some unfortunate people who are the most vulnerable, and they die in the desert. Or they make it through. Some make it through. Some get caught by the Border Patrol, but a lot of people make it through. In, in Chapter 5, which is called La Frontera, you talk about Border Patrol, and you talk about ICE quite a bit, um, including the, the dumping, I believe that's the word you use, of, of migrants anywhere, including McDonald's parking lots the starving of these people inside of uh, ICE facilities. 
Um, and and the to your point about people dying in the desert, that that border patrol goes through and dumps out water, but you know, cash sheets of water um, that a- a- advocates have put there for them to help them survive. As you were absorbing all of this information on that trip, how did that impact your worldview? Well, it makes me see. I, I live in a pretty privileged bubble. Um, one of the things that really troubles me is that the, the border patrol used to be pretty good guys. They find somebody in the desert, they give them water, let them know where they were. Maybe they'd arrest it, maybe not. But they, the problem is they don't make very much money, and the drug cartels have a lot of money, so they bri- bribe the, the border patrol. And then that criminalizes a whole bunch of the, of the United States institutions. They break the law by taking bribes, and they just go from there to dirtier and dirtier. And when they put the military on the border, the military's attitude is it's us against the enemy. And they they dehumanize people they catch. And they, they're mean to them. They beat them or they torture them or they kill them outright or they haul them off to jail, which is like being tortured and beaten to death. In Arizona, they have chain gangs. So they, all the prisons are privately owned. They have chain gangs in the prisons where they're working sun up to sundown in the hot sun with no protection. There's no shade. There's no parasol. <laughs> Whatever you do is to protect yourself from the sun, there's nothing. And people die from that, you know? If you pass a bad check, it shouldn't have to be a capital punishment. But they're really cruel and unregulated in the Arizona prisons. In the middle of, of all of the inhumane treatment of, of migrants uh, on the Mexican side of the border, you talk a place called the Comedor. Can you tell us uh, about that place and, and what services are provided to migrants there or were? Very little service. They're not even let to wait on the on the American side. They have to wait on the Mexican side. So they're stuck there maybe from Guatemala or El Salvador. And they are made to wait in a strange country, in a strange town that is very high crime rate because of the activities going on at the border. And it just criminalizes the people. It separates them from their families. They're taking children away from their families. Children as young as five months, still nursing from their mothers. They're taking them and sending them to New Jersey or someplace like that, New York. It was terrible. It was just it's needlessly cruel and sadistic. And yet there's these great examples of humanity, uh, particularly I'm thinking about some of the work uh, of a friend you traveled there with, uh, Shura. Can you talk about her and the work that, that she and uh, her comrades are doing in that area? Well, Shura is just a good person. She doesn't like to see human suffering, and she doesn't like to see it, especially when she can do something about it. And when you get there, I've been across the border with her on several occasions. And when you get there and see what's going on, there's so many people suffering. There's so many people in pain that could be relieved. And, you know, people are like a ramada, a big circular ramada there where we were, they, they were receiving people that had been deported. And there was maybe some water, no place to pee, no phones, no food. And they just sort of get together and sort of start, that, start out what they were going to do now that they've been thrown off over the fence or like a piece of the old Kleenex. And Shura would look around and see who looked like they were in trouble. She didn't speak Spanish. She managed to do it all by sign language and nonverbal communication. She'd find out somebody to have a toothache. And she had a, a dentist in Mexico that worked for free for the for the migrants. So she didn't know where to take him with his toothache. And she looked around to find somebody who was, was a driver. And she found a guy that used to be a taxi driver that had a car and asked him if he'd, he'd take him to the, to the dentist. And the guy went to the dentist and the dentist pulled his tooth out. And it took them out of a lot of suffering, but there's only one of Shura. There, actually, there were several of Shura. There was a lot, a lot of volunteers that came. But it's just a drop in the bucket. We need to have have action on the national level to help these people because they're they're humans. They, they dehumanize them by throwing them away at the border. 
There are people here that can't get workers. It's a worker shortage. Those people can take those jobs. They're jobs that Americans generally don't want to take. In in 2019, when, it, when Chapter 5 takes place, uh, the orange dude <laughs> was president. He's announced he's running again. He may actually win again. A terrifying thought. <laughs> Um, for you and your your heart, I, I guess, what gets tugged in terms of what that could mean for the people of Sonoran Desert and how much worse could it get for migrants on, on both sides of the border, for that matter? Well, it makes me furious. It's a, it's a waste of resources. And it's a sacrificing a lot of good human beings that could help us up here. I don't know what we could do about it except for vote. I mean, the idea of another ex-president going back into the White House is terrifying. He systematically destroyed every good institution he could, the Supreme Court, the police, the State Department. You know, he just is so overwhelmed with conspiracy theories, which I don't think he believes in in one bit. I think he's just exploiting it and causing fear and feeling of, you know, it's hard for me to think of a, of a Trump supporter as being anything but my enemy. And I know that some people are just conned by his strange charisma that I don't know. He's, he's revolting to me. But yeah, if if America votes for that, they're going to deserve what they get. I just don't want to deserve it too. I think this would be a tragedy. Imagine if if Trump were in, in the White House right now with the um, the war going on in Ukraine and the situation with Russia and China and Iran. He doesn't know anything about foreign policy. He doesn't know anything about those cultures. He only knows about his own stupid self. He's not very smart. The scary thing is if it, somebody who's really smart got in that position and figured out how to latch onto the, his charisma, that would be really terrifying. I agree. I mean, I, I, I hear you when you say, right, like if America votes for him, we deserve what we get. But there's going to be so many of us that don't vote for him that will also get. But, you know, not not, not what we we deserve. Um, there's also uh, Ms. Ronstadt uh, songs that are scattered throughout the book. Why did you choose the songs you did? Where do they come from and how do they drive the story you were telling? Well, um. There's a playlist on Spotify that goes along with that book. There's also a, a record out by Putu Mayo, but it, is, it doesn't have my playlist. My playlist is on, is on, on Spotify. But there's Mexican songs that I heard when I was a child growing up, mostly songs that we sang as a family. Um, some are traditional Mexican songs and rancheras that I sang as a child and sang as an adult. And I just got one or two more questions for you. I should have started here, but we sort of jumped into the Sonoran hot dog conversation. I would like you to spend a few minutes for my listeners talking about your childhood and your family and the role of music in your family. Well, we did a lot of eating outside because the desert is hot. And if you got the stove going in the kitchen, you have to get out, and find the shade someplace. But that's what we would do. There would be a shady place we just chosen. He preferably near water. When we were at home, we'd be at the, by the swimming pool. Then when we'd go out in the country, we'd find a, find a little lake or a little pond or a stream. And people would cook what they brought. It would be grass-fed beef from the ranches and local chilies and beans and squash and corn that we either grew in my garden, our garden or the rancher grew. And in the evening time, the guitars would come out and people would start to sing. Not professionally, not like a party piece, just singing and the conversation ebbed and flowed around the music. And people threw on whatever harmonies they could, they could think up or, you know, sang along on the on the melody. It didn't matter. My father had a beautiful voice. Mostly people listened to him. We all sang on the harmonies. We knew we knew them. We didn't know the words very well, but we'd sort of sing them along phonetically. 
And when did you decide or, or did you decide or was it happenstance that that pursuing a career as a musician was going to be the life path you walked? Well, I decided when I was about six, when I went to first grade, that I could read real well, but I couldn't understand arithmetic. And it frightened me that I couldn't understand arithmetic. And I thought, it doesn't matter, I'm going to be a singer, I won't have to do arithmetic. I'll get someone to do it for me. And I did. I still can't do arithmetic, but I'm a good reader. <laughs> I'm with you. I can't do arithmetic either. I've, not, I've got the other side of the brain. I can read and I can write, but adding and subtracting things is not my... My mother was a math and physics major, and all she wanted out of her four children was a scholar, preferably math, and she got four musicians. <laughs> my sister got married, and so she didn't continue her career. She had a good voice. She could have had a career. My brother, my older brother, Peter, had the best voice of all of us. He became chief of police in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And my other brother, Mike, had a career. He made his living being a troubadour. What is your hope for, for this book, Ms. Ronstadt? Uh, how, what is your wish for how it's received in the world? Well, I hope it makes him understand a little bit about the border in Mexico and about the, about the culture of the Sonoran Desert, which is quite a lovely culture, quite, quite complex. People tend to see the desert is a wasteland, but nature doesn't like perfect geometry. Nature likes random asymmetry, and the desert is shaped like random asymmetry. And we put perfect geometry in like a housing development or something like that. It, it, turns, it turns the desert, which is very giving and bountiful, turns it into a wasteland. I'll tell you the, the difference between an American cowboy and a Mexican cowboy is an American will buy a ranch in the center of thousands of acres, put his, put his house there in the middle, and his wife and everybody, they're isolated from society. They're isolated from friends and family. And they they think they're alone. They're sort of alone up there in their ranch. But they think they did it all themselves. They're not realizing they, they depended on years of government subsidies, price supports, land leasing, all that kind of, the highways that they use to truck the cattle to market and the railroads. So they're, they're recipients of government money. A Mexican cowboy will live in a village and the cattle ranchers, they live together in a village. And then they share the land that's all around there. So everything's very cooperative. They help each other build fences, build barns, fix trucks, whatever they have to do. And it's a very cooperative culture. It's not competitive, except for in soccer, you know, sports. Mm-hmm. But they, they don't, no, nobody's trying to outdo the other one. Everybody's just trying to help. If your car breaks down on the road in Mexico, northern Mexico, somebody will stop and help you. They'll drive out of their way to, to get, the, get a part you need or whatever you need to get on your way. But if you break down on the freeway in Los Angeles, they'll just run over for you. They don't stop and help you. They don't dare. They're taking their life in their hands. It's just a very different culture, and it's a high moral culture because if you steal somebody's TV, they're not going to help you build your fence. You know, they, people treat each other with great respect and kindness. In that particular valley, if you move over to another, to another valley, it might be different. It depends on where the, where the drug activity is because the cartels have become very powerful in Mexico, and that's a shame, but they have been. Well, you capture the the culture, the lifestyle, the landscape um, beautifully in your book. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it for a bit. Well, thank you for having me. Anytime. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.